The mother wound is how shame gets passed down. Inner mothering is how we heal it. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. I noticed that when I do the intro, I go, welcome back to Adult Child. Adult Child. Uh, For any listeners, my name is Andrea. I am strange. (laughs) I'm uh, the queen of the shit show here, and I'm an adult child. And if you're wondering whether or not you're an adult child, uh, the answer is probably. Or more likely, the answer is yes, like 99.99% chance if you stumbled across this podcast, you are most likely an adult child. What is an adult child, you ask? I'll give you two answers. So uh, this comes from the 12-step program ACA, which defines an adult child as someone who responds to adult situations with self-doubt, self-blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior, all as a result of their childhood experiences. Uh, Another definition, this comes from uh, Tian Dayton, who is an adult child queen in my book. And she defines an adult child as someone who's un resolved childhood pain surfaces and plays out in adulthood and not in a good way. And if you're wondering what those ways are, go check out the laundry list, which is the 14 common characteristics of an adult child. Uh, If you've never read this before, be prepared to shit your pants. That was my experience. Uh, So welcome aboard this shit show. So today we are diving deep with Bethany Webster and I am so jazzed for you guys to hear this uh, this interview. So Bethany is an author, a coach, a speaker. She is the author of the book, Discovering the Inner Mother, A Guide to Healing the Mother Wound and Claiming Your Personal Power. And um, I've been wanting to have her on the pod for, for quite some time. I've been a huge fan of her book. I read it a while ago. It, it's quite interesting because I feel like I've been having a lot of, um, I'm having a lot more revelations about my mother wound. So I was planning on having this be a more lengthy intro for me because I just have a ton of insights and ahas and things that I want to share with you as it relates to my mother wound. But I woke up this morning feeling like absolute shit, like horrible body aches. Uh, Then I got horrible heartburn. I've had heartburn maybe... I could probably can count on one hand the amount of times that I've had heartburn. Uh, I did take a COVID test. I don't have COVID, but I've just been laying around all day. I haven't even brushed my teeth. I haven't even washed my face. And on that note, as I'm editing this, I'm noticing that there is some weird background noise. It sounds like there is a faint little drummer boy off in the distance. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I apologize. I'm trying my best to edit it out. I would re-record it if I didn't feel so shitty. And if you're new, please know this is not the norm. I typically pride myself on having top-notch audio quality, so I apologize for the little drummer boy on the in the background of this episode. You only have to listen to three more minutes of this, and then the audio quality is fine. Thanks. So um, I'm going to hold off on giving you my deeper insights on all this stuff until I'm feeling a little bit better. Maybe I'll do a solo episode either next week or the week after. I've been due to do a solo episode. It's interesting. I'm having some hesitancy there, which could be something to unpack in that episode as well. But so, as I said, she is the author of um, Discovering Your Inner Mother. Now, this book is mostly focused on the mother wound as it relates to, um, you know, being a daughter, mother-daughter wound. However, I would say everything that we discuss in this this interview is applicable to the gentleman as well. And uh, here's the deal. We all have a mother wound, right? We all have a mother wound if we're listening to this podcast. So buckle up. This is such a a fabulous conversation. I learned a ton. You'll get so much out of this please go check out her book and all the things. So let's get the damn 
show on the road so I can get back to being a bum on the couch. Uh, but first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the Join Shit Show, which is my online support community where I host weekly Zoom support groups where you can connect with other fellow shit shows. Uh, here is how I'm selling it to you guys today. Okay, I'm going to read to you this message that I received from um, a new shit show dude that recently joined the group. Now, if you listen to this past shit show Saturday, I included um, a portion of a recent group. And I said in the beginning of the episode that there was an even more you know, powerful and profound share, uh, but I didn't include that because I wanted to you know, respect the person who, um, who was sharing that. So this gentleman sent me this message in response to that, and I just wanted to read this to you. Because if you don't want to damn the Joy and Shit Show after hearing this, I don't know what the hell's wrong with you, okay? So here's what he said. Hi, Andrea. I just listened to yesterday's podcast. I appreciate and respect that you chose to exclude my portion of last Thursday's me meeting. I really do. I want you to know, though, I would have been okay with it had you included it. I think I'll always struggle with knowing whether I'm safe or not in the world. That said, I want you to know that you have established a safe space for all of us. And together, we support each other to make sure that continues. I thought about saying this during the meeting today. All of us shit shows were betrayed in one form or another by people who either didn't want to or didn't know how to attune themselves to their children. We are social beings. Real connection is essential for us to thrive. In spite of how hard it was for me to say what I said, I knew I was safe and supported. For me, that is profound. It is us together, we shit shows, creating and developing those connections, rewiring our brains. Thank you, Andrea. See you soon. Oh, God. Oof, man. Oh, what a surreal experience this, this all has been. I'm so honored. I feel so grateful. Damn the joy shit show, you fools. What are you doing? <laughs> Damn the join shit show. Uh, see the show notes for ways that you can join. Okay. Uh, next, give me a little follow on the Insta on the TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. This is absolutely required. Thank you. Love you all. Y'all, buckle up. We're in for a wild ride. We have the uh, the inner mother, the mother wound queen herself, Bethany Webster. Welcome to Adult Child. Thank you so much. Are you familiar with this term? Yes, I love the term. Yes. Okay. Do you consider yourself an adult child? Yeah, I consider myself an adult child. Well, I'm both. I'm an adult and I have a child inside of me. And I think we have parts. And so, yeah, it feels true. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the term was initially adult children of alcoholics, but it wasn't long before they realized that it's adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families and that there's a lot of different dysfunctional family types that can result in creating an adult child. So I think everybody qualifies. I think everybody does too. And I like that you put it forward because I think it's where we need to go collectively is to start to take that kind of responsibility that we all carry baggage and beliefs and things that we all have a responsibility to work through. And I think my parents' generation, grandparents' generation, that was not something that you did. It would be considered a loss of power to acknowledge. Oh, absolutely. You know? um, so this quote in the book, I was just looking to see what I had had highlighted. This really spoke to me. You say, but slowly over time, I learned that I was suffering from complex developmental trauma it would take me years to realize the breadth and the depth of my developmental trauma, how it had fractured my sense of self, leaving me with extremely painful and pervasive symptoms on every level of being. And that was my experience. I had no damn clue that I was suffering from complex PTSD, like no idea. Yes, I know. I, I, it's amazing. Like I was thinking about this the other day because this is something I really help my clients do, which is kind of come to terms with the magnitude of what we actually went through. And once that happens, as we have that dawning realization, which is horrifying, but it's also liberating because then 
we can heal, right? Then we can start to heal. But when we're growing up, we don't know any different. You know, like my first therapy session with my therapist, I was like, I have a great family. My mom and I are best friends, you know, and everything's great. But I was crying literally the entire sessions. Every time I went, I had no idea. I was like, I don't know why I'm so sad, why I feel so hopeless, but I have a great family. And I laugh about it now just because I didn't know what I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. it feels amazing to have gotten to where I am now, where I've had a lot of support to have the courage to start to accept the reality of what actually happened and how it really impacted me. I think a lot of us spend a lot of time in denial, not, not feeling ready yet, but we have to be ready, right? And our subconscious will give us what we need when we're ready to see it. So realizing just truly how dysfunctional and traumatic your childhood was versus the realization of how pervasive your mother wound was, would you say that those were separate awakenings or one in the same? I think they were separate. I think the first one was, I talk about this a bit when I do teaching. Like when I first went to therapy, I really didn't want to talk about my mother. I was too scared. I knew it would be too, I would be shattered. I felt too fragile. But then I did start, when that first realization came, it was when I started to see, oh my God, every single part of my life, like romantic relationships, the way I feel about food and body image, the way I feel about my potential in the world, it was all influenced by some very major core beliefs that came from my mother. And I had an oh shit moment, like, oh my God, if I don't do something about this, I'm basically going to live my mother's life. And it was a really kind of scary moment, but it made me like commit. I have to do something about this. I can't be in denial about it anymore. So that was a turning point. But then the turning point, the second one was later, you know, along the healing journey where it's like even way later, oh my God, it was that bad. And basically being in the grief of it and really paying attention to what my body's telling me because my body was telling me things that maybe my mind was in denial of, you know, flashbacks. I had, you know, I didn't go into this too much in the book, but, you know, I had like emotional incest with my mother. I was kind of her surrogate spouse. And I had, even just a couple of years ago, a terrible flashback about more of that dirty, incestuous, you know, kind of almost sexual abuse vibe for my mom. And my body was just like going into a total flashback and I had support. So that was really good. But I, I basically had to walk around town for a couple hours and just ground and, you know, because it was so terrifying. So it's, it's this interesting thing where the more you heal, the more healed you become, the more you are capable of and more resilient enough to handle the information that might come up for you to process. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So you have to develop that resilience, which can take many, many years, decades even, to process some of the deepest, darkest, subconscious, even pre-verbal type of abuse. So that's my experience. And, And that's something that a lot of people, I like to help people with understanding because at first it can be like, wait a second, I thought I had done all this work and I should be like not dealing with really deep trauma, traumatic flashbacks anymore, you know, at year 15 or year 20. And then it's actually, no, you are that healed that you're strong enough. You're strong enough. You can handle it. And as always, you know, it's important to remember that these flashbacks and things are, it's just energy, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. it's all, it passes. It's like a burp from the past, basically, you know, undigested pain that we weren't able to process at the time that we are now capable, our body and our, just our system is saying, okay, she's ready, you know? And, and so we just have to get the support we need to process that. That's a long answer. No, it was beautiful. I was just in Vegas this past weekend with a dear friend of mine. That was the discussion that we're having. The universe is very much at play with that too, as far as knowing like when we can handle certain things and almost, you know, these like divinely inspired interactions with people from our past. It's like, it's, we now know that we're strong enough to really confront those deeper wounds. Yeah, totally. I love that you brought that up because I think it's a really magical, you know, the universe is so wants us to heal. <laughs> like the forces of life itself want the healing to happen. So if we express that intention, that commitment, that desire, you can trust that everything that starts to come into your life 
I see this with my coaching clients. When they sign up with me, it's like it almost starts. Okay, here we go. We're on a ride and the universe is going to bring you exactly the people, the opportunities, the triggers. And it's it's almost, you know, I like to think about this human life as being a school. Like we're here to learn. And the more I can proactively approach whatever challenge I'm having and say, okay, you know, universe life, what do you want me to learn here? What am I, what's the most empowering response I can bring to this? Things tend to go smoother. The, the less in resistance I am to it, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. <laughs> so how would you have described your relationship with your mother? Let's say prior to like when you had that first realization of, oh yeah, my, my childhood messed me up a lot more than I thought it did. How would you have described the dynamics in the relationship with your mother compared to how you would describe it now for most of your life? Like what was your understanding or beliefs? What was the narrative in your head as far as what the relationship with your mom was like? Yeah, that's a great question. Before that, I thought my mom was great. I thought she was smart. I thought she was beautiful. I thought she was kind. I thought she was caring. I thought she was altruistic towards others. I also thought that she was overwhelmed and that I played, I needed to help her and that my dad Mm. was more the bad guy who was the lazy one because that was her narrative. Like all men suck. Your father is a failure basically. And I'm the victim of everything. So I really believed like I was kind of like her attendant. I make mom feel good. I... You know, and I started though, that started to crack a little bit once I got to college and I had distance, like I lived away from home. Mm. I mean, when I was a teen, I was away as often as possible. I had a car as soon as I could, I got out of there, but I was still in that good girl identity of, I keep my family together. I keep the harmony that gave me a sense Mm. of control and power. But then I I remember I had some interactions with my mother that started to crack that facade. I remember I said to her something like, you're so caring. You're so generous, you know? And she was just like, eh. I was like, wait a second. Is she? (laughs) Because her response was so like, she had like a weird, yucky, gnarly response to me saying that. And I was like, oh my God, maybe I've needed to Mm -hmm. believe that she was that, Mm -hmm. you know, because she had done some really cruel things in my childhood, but I always chalked that up to like, she's overworked, she's burdened, she's struggling. I never let myself take that in. You know, it was easier to say my dad's an asshole and my mom's the good one. And, you know, just continue with that. But it just, it started to fall apart. And then the culmination of what I really saw, like to just take it to the counterpoint, I was 27. I think I talked about this in the book. And I I was like, I need to confront because she had done some things that, you know, I'd been in therapy long enough that I was like, oh, I see it now. So what am I going to freaking do about it? (laughs) You know, now that I know that this is a toxic dynamic after many years in therapy, I can't just let this go on. And I didn't want to not have a connection with her. I wanted I actually wanted us to become more real. Let's have a real connection of two people. Not like I'm your little good girl daughter who's always acquiescing to whatever mm-hmm. you want. I want to be like an equal where we can actually respect each other, you know, that kind of thing. And so what I did was I confronted her and I was like, you know, I want to change our dynamic. It doesn't feel good to me. Some things you've done feel like I'm an extension of you <laughs> rather than my own person. That was the bottom line I was saying, you know. Was this something that you had agreed upon with your therapist yes. as far as what you were going to say? It was literally a strategy. Like I remember I had it printed out on paper. I had a cell phone. I was praying out loud before I called her <laughs> because I knew I was like, this is a bomb that's going to go off in the family. Mm. And I had a lot of dread. This is going to blow everything up. I didn't even realize how much it would. I had no idea the extent at which this was going to blow up my family. Because what I realized that the reason it blew up was because my role in the family system was to not have boundaries, to not speak up, to not be a person, just kind of be like a sponge and a that function of like, I make everything okay. I smooth everything over. And then when I stepped out mm-hmm. of that, the family kind of imploded. Everybody was relying on me for certain things. And when I stopped mm-hmm. playing that toxic role for my own self-care, it all went to shit. And they blamed me for it. You know, that's what happens typically. So I told her on the phone, I said, you know, I want to change our relationship. Some things you've said haven't landed right with me. It was basically like I was at work. I was in a new job and I talked to her about it and she had said, oh, you're like me. So you're going to be fine. You're just like me. So everything's going to work out. She literally said that. And I I reflected on it with my therapist and I was like, 
it feels like my, mm. that is a symbol of my entire existence to her is that I am a reflection. I am a mirror. I am not a human to my mother. I'm a cardboard cutout that makes her feel good about herself, you know? And I just was like, I can't live like that. It's actually oppositional to everything I believe and stand for now as a person, as an adult. And this was my Saturn return, by the way, because yeah. astrology is so on time. So initially, she wrote me back an email the next day. She got off the phone quickly. She's like, I got to go. So she couldn't even, I mean, it was like even a five minute conversation. The next day she sent me an email that says, I'm sorry, I didn't really understand what you were saying. I'm going to reflect on it. And I was like, dude, okay, maybe this is all right. Like that false hope, man, that false yeah, hope. Yeah, I'm like, you know, she didn't, there was not an implosion, but it was a delayed detonation. Mm. So it wasn't until the next day she started sending me a slew of emails that were just horrific. I don't think you should stay here next time. Do you come to town? You clearly hate me and you've been a stranger. It's clear that you've been a stranger mm. my whole life. I don't really know you. Like you've changed mm. things like it must be your therapist or, you know, she's turning you against me. So almost like paranoid and she would swing from idealizing me like you're my daughter and I love you so much. And I remember when you were a little baby to, you know, I know who you are. And, you you know, she brought up all my mistakes, like every mistake mm -hmm. I've ever made, you know, and trying to kind of isolate me like I'm the only one that yeah, really knows you. So like a lot of these really primitive tactics and it was almost like a mental illness was being revealed. You know, it was like the top was coming off of a very big can of worms that was like a rot. And I, I saw that the intensity with which she was attacking me was not really about me. It was really, I mm. think, about her own wounds, her own mother wound. Like when she had me, I don't know if you've read the book by Alice Miller called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Of course. You know this, of course. It, it was basically that story, which was her mother. And I didn't, when I didn't learn this until I was like in college. This was all a family secret. But it came out later that, you know, my grandmother her mother, who was like the matriarch and had this status and she was kind of, everybody like bowed to her. She was a hellacious alcoholic. And, you know, my grandfather didn't come home a lot of times. He just stayed away. Mm. He had a job that took him away. And so my mother basically had to raise five kids by herself as a child. So she had a horrific childhood and never dealt with it, never went to therapy. So she has me and she's, now I have a mommy. I have a little person who's going to make me feel special. Mm. You know, she, of course, this is all unconscious, obviously. But I mean, I understand mm -hmm. where a human could, you know, where she could do that. But so that's what I was seeing revealed was like, I was threatening everything about her, her sense of identity by saying, I want to be my own person. But that's like taking her mother away. It's like taking her attachment away. That's what was happening. She was like in a rage, like a narcissistic borderline rage. Like, how dare you? And plus, I was also embodying a different worldview, which is, you know, adults take responsibility for their wounds. And that was so against the family ethos that she grew up in, which is basically we ignore everything. We put everything under mm. the rug. We pretend like everything's fine. Conflict is handled by just pretending it didn't happen. You know, that's how she rolls and how my father rolls. And there was all costs of alcohol and shit in the mix as well. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying, no, I don't believe that. I believe that, you know, I want us to take responsibility. I want us to communicate clearly. And, you know, the ironic thing is that she in her professional life was a nonviolent communication person. Of course. Of course, right? And it's this was going down. And I remember on my little uh, refrigerator in New York City, I had a, a magnet on my fridge that said, you know, principles of nonviolent communication. And I'm looking at it as I'm going through this hellacious attacks with my mother. And I'm like, oh, my God. It was almost like my sense of reality was like, what is going on? I knew it was going to be bad. I just didn't know it was going to be this bad. And, and then, of course, my father's like, apologize to your mother. You know, everybody's trying to like, flying monkeys tell me you're wrong. Just let it go. Forget it. Mm. What's going on with you and your mom? Just let it go. And I'm just like, hell no, I'm not letting anything go. I, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm just trying to have a good, you know, improve this dynamic because it's painful and deleterious to my well-being. Nobody wanted to hear that. So yeah, it was just, that was the start. And then it went on and I got, I got to the point where, you know, I moved a couple of things happened. It died down a bit. And then I moved to where I live now and she started sending me these emails that were really disturbing. Like I kept saying, I need some distance. It's basically what I said. Can we just have some distance? Let's just call a truce for now. I just, I don't want to talk. 
And that seemed to be okay for a while. But then she started to write to me and say, Hey, I have stuff of yours at the house. I want to give them to you. And, and I would just ignore it, ignore it. And then she started threatening me. Like, if you don't answer my voicemail, I'm going to go to your job. I'm going to show up at your work. If you don't reply to me, I'm going to show up at your doorstep, you know? And I was starting, you know, at first I'm like, whatever, it's not a big deal. But then it started to feel really scary. She actually started stalking my therapist. She sent her emails under a different email address trying to pose as a nurse who wanted to go to therapy so she could like get into her therapy practice. <laughs> she, she got her own therapist to like, you know, attack my therapist mm. where my therapist needed to get like security cameras at her house. I had to file for a training wow. order against my mother. I actually mm. was afraid that she could show up at my doorstep, like with a knife or something, or like want to hurt me. And I just talked to the cops. I had to, and like, they had a state trooper call her. Mm. And anyway, you know, it's just really hard to go through that because it's, oh my God, I, what I did, I just had to remind myself, the reason this is happening is because I'm trying to stand up for myself and mm -hmm. to see the raw rage at me for that, that I could never convince her no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I tried to explain to her, mom, I love mm. you. I want to work with you. Mm -hmm. She couldn't hear that. She couldn't hear that I was a, you know, a good person. It was just, I became like black sheep in her eyes and like an enemy. And that is very difficult. It's one, I think the one of the most difficult things that you can go through. Absolutely. It's like the person who is supposed to love you the most in the world wants to hurt you. And she stalked me online when I started blogging. She would come online and say, you're a fraud. You're a liar. You're, you know, none of this mm. is true. And it's funny because mm. actually at some points my clients would get on and say, actually, no, you're clearly unwell. Mm -hmm. And Bethany is helping us with people like you. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, the kind of stress that that puts like adrenaline, oh my God, you know, and I think that's what she wanted to do was to intimidate me into becoming that little girl that she remembers me, that, that was like her third arm, you know, that she could control mm. and that gave her a sense of, um, so I have a lot of compassion for her. She still stalks me occasionally and the whole family, you know, I don't have kind of. Well, that's what I wanted to get into next. So you have siblings. So you, you were more of a hero child during your upbringing, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And was your, you had a, what you had an older sister? Was she kind younger of like brother, the scapegoat? Younger brother. Young, okay. I don't know. I thought, okay. Yeah, no. I'm and was he scapegoated? Mom. Was he the scapegoaty? Well, in the, yeah, when we were little, he, but now he was you the are. bad kid <laughs> and he got all yeah. kinds of abuse and neglect, especially from my dad. He got more physical violence from my dad. And I protected him as much as I could. I would stop. I, I would try to protect him. And I took that on when I was a teen. I would take him. He was struggling. He was at risk. Mm -hmm. I see that now. I was like. What was the age difference? Three years. Okay. And I would, I would take him with me. I got my car. I was like, all right, we're friends. You know, he would try to be like, duke it out. You're like, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. We're going to be friends. I'm going to help you. I'm going to take you in my arms. We're going to be buddies. And, and that's what we did. And I that was beautiful for a while. And then when, when this happened, we know, I know where you're going. Yeah. I'm just like <laughs> trying to decide how much to say, but basically, you know, I was disrupting his narrative of his narrative, of the family. I was trying to bring us together as I was going through this. Let's compare mm -hmm. notes. Like, how are you doing with this? Mm -hmm. And he was just mm -hmm. like, I can't have you in my life. You're wounded. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Mm -hmm. He dropped me on a Tuesday afternoon after we were just planning to get together. So I could see that he was deeply triggered by what I started to represent, which was, you have to look at this. You ain't okay because I'm not okay and you're not okay. The thing was, I had been in therapy up to that point for almost 20 years. Many years. So like he yeah. had barely had any therapy. So of course he's not going to yeah. be able to be on my level. But I think I wanted that, you know, that was part of my own. Healing. Of course. I want my bro on my side and he dropped me like a hot potato. And so he became the good kid. And I think this benefit, mm -hmm. like I became the, the black sheep that is mm -hmm. now, you know, hated mm -hmm. by everybody. And he kept the good mm -hmm. boy. And I think that is, that must, that happens in a lot of families where all the time, all the time. And I think that's what happened yeah. with my father, actually, in his family, his two eldest siblings went no contact. And then he became mm. the good boy. And my brother, I think that happened with the same thing. So interesting how families, you know, how this stuff passes down. 
I think that that's like the most insidious aspect of of a dysfunctional family system is when one tries to, you know, break the dysfunction or just heal themselves, how the rest of the system is like attack, 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 attack. And it's so subconscious, you know, and it's so hurtful. So for me, I was an only child and I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. They told me. Oh, okay. (laughs) We were like out to dinner one night and I could tell that there was something wrong with my mom. And at a certain point she took me to the bathroom and I was like, what's wrong? And she's, I'm an alcoholic. And of course, I don't know what the hell that means, but exactly what it meant, you know? And I woke up the next morning and it was as if I had skipped several stages of development. Like, oh, wow. I just like six cents as it related to my mom and her drinking. And, you know, my dad traveled a lot for work, which is when she drank the most. Was which just he you knew. and her together. And he knew, he knew that she was, you know, I was eight years old, like helping him search the house for her booze. I remember going into like a liquor cabinet, pretty young age, taking a paint stick and like measuring and monitoring. So her drinking was a secret from the rest of the world. And so he really used me as, you know, his emotional support and confidant. But my mom was a periodic drinker, you know, like it was very, several months would go by and she wouldn't. And my mom was like the most loving, wonderful mother in the world. When she was sober? She was. Yeah, she was the best fucking mom ever. And so, and my dad was kind of more of an asshole and, and so parentified like at a very, you know, young age. And then at nine, I developed separation anxiety with her. So like I had to sleep in her bed every night, like I would wake up and what I now realize is, so I had, whenever my dad was out of town, I would always, it was like a sleepover in my mom's bed. So I would fall asleep in my bed. And then when I'd wake up in the middle of the night to pee, I would go into her room and spend the rest of the night there. And then there was one night in particular where I walked in there and all the lights were still on and the bed was still made and she had passed out downstairs and I had to carry upstairs. So I'm not quite sure like that happened a few times and I'm not quite sure how long after that initial incident this occurred, but there was one night where I woke up in the middle of the night, my dad was there and I felt like I was going to fucking die if I couldn't sleep in my mom's bed. And so that started this pattern of I'd fall asleep in my bed and then I'd go and switch places with my dad in the middle of the night. So then eventually they sent me to a therapist. And I remember years later asking my mom, like, hey, did you ever tell that therapist that like you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? <laughs> and her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. <laughs> oh my God. And so that's when I became like the identified patient and the scapegoat. And then at the age of 12 is when I started drinking and acting out. And guess what? That worked in saving the family. Like for the next seven years, I was was in and out of rehabs and boarding schools. My mom stopped drinking mostly. My parents stopped fighting mostly because they had to come together to deal with me. You know, it's almost like a (laughs) self-sacrifice to the family kind of thing. Like you were the sacrificial lamb. And granted, there is alcoholism and addiction on both sides of my family anyway. Sure. So it's not like I really stood a chance anyways. But mm. yeah, like I became the focus of the family. And and then when I got sober at 19, it was just kind of like a downward spiral for for the both of them. And especially my mom's drinking. Yeah. How did that happen? So I, I'm super curious about that. So you got sober and then you weren't the problem anymore. Yeah. And so for the first, and I'm an only child too. And so I would say for the first couple of years of my sobriety, she was coming to meetings with me. It was kind of like, I can't expect my daughter to go to meetings. Oh, I forgot this fun part. When I was in the sixth grade, I went to an AA meeting with her and I raised my hand. I was like, hi, I'm Andrea. And I don't want to be an alcoholic. (laughs) And then I was in rehab like a year and a half later for the first time. But it was like, she would come to meetings with me for the first couple of years because she was like, I can't expect my daughter to go if I'm not going to go with her. But she never really did the deal. And so I just remember this like one time in particular where she was going to visit her mom and I talked to her on the phone and like, I could just tell that she'd been drinking. Like I know within a couple seconds, right? right? But then it didn't for a while. And I just remember my sponsor being like, if she is like more will be revealed. Yeah. And then it did. It was just kind of like this spiral down like where it I would say there was a real turning point around when I had around four years sober 
And then I hit my adult child bottom at nine years. So, and that was in dating, right? I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on with me. Right. Like I knew that my childhood was fucked up, but I didn't, it was that bad because like I became the focus. And also too, because I was so aware of what was going on and, you know, it was so intellectualized Right. and I was never sexually abused. I was never told I was a piece of shit ever. Right. My parents were always at the swim meets driving my mom, you know, they, they were wonderful. So like, how bad could it truly have been? Like I spent so many years not realizing that whenever I was in a relationship that I was living in an emotional flashback. Like I had, and it was finally that one experience where I was finally able to connect the dots where a guy had ghosted me after dating for less than a month. And I realized the feeling that I was feeling was the exact same ah, feeling that I felt. Bingo. I woke up in the fucking night and had to sleep in my mom's bed. And so that was in 2018 was when I really started doing this work and realized how impacted I was. And so then when I really started to break away from the system, because I'd always played this role, right? It's like attack, 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 attack. And it's not conscious on their part. But I mean, I had an incident where the way I like to describe it on the podcast is I don't get involved anymore but I also don't participate in the family denial. Yeah. So like, I'm not going to ignore the elephant in the room, but I'm not going to try to carry the elephant out of the room anymore. Hell no. Yeah. And I had an experience where like, I acknowledged the elephant in the room and I woke up the next morning and I had a text saying like, we've changed all the locks on the doors in Tahoe. You're no longer welcome there anymore. So it was like any experience that they could to kind of put me back in that scapegoat role, they would. Now think, they came around because I just stood my ground, you know, and thank God for my therapist. And I've been able to figure out how to have a relationship with them that works They're, You know, my dad definitely is an alcoholic now too, but they're really proud of me. Like for doing, you know, it's like they're as loving and supportive as they possibly can be. You know, that I know what the deal is. I just feel so grateful that they get to be my teachers and I get to be the one to like, you know, break the cycle and stuff. And I know that they love me so much, but what's been so hard with my mom is just, I did have that wonderful mom. Like so many people in my community, like they're just so horrible. I know how much my mom loves me, you know, I know and lose that. And so yeah, what's been which is just so appropriate, like for our, for our interview is like the self-sabotage that I am, have been experiencing like all along, like, and start. So part of hitting that bottom was the realization that like, I had never truly considered what a fulfilling career would look like for me. You know, I was like a CPA at the time. And all I really cared about was like finding a guy and getting married. So part of that journey of healing from my childhood was also figuring out, you know, like what the fuck, why was I brought to this earth? Right. And that led me to starting this podcast in my closet on the floor next to my cat's litter box. And it like, it just blew up overnight. Right. And I've, and I've truly found my purpose. And I know that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but God, the self-sabotage like that I'm still experiencing with this. And it's getting so frustrating. And I had the realization like a couple months ago, actually, I think I'm carrying, I'm carrying shit. That's my mom's like, it's her inability to. So she decided to stay at home with me after I was born and it was her decision. It's really interesting because I was looking back through your book too. And just the things that you talk about, it was actually her that wanted to stay at home. And I think my dad actually wanted her to continue to work because he wanted the extra income, Mm -hmm. but it's, she's such an amazing woman, but due to her alcoholism, she has been completely unable to thrive. So it's like, I've confronted the alcoholism, but I think that there is this unconscious loyalty to her that I'm committing by not fully thriving. And the other thing too, is like with her dad, he wanted her to just become a PE teacher. He just wanted her to become a gym teacher and she wanted to work in finance and in business. And so that's what she ended up doing. But I know that the messages from her dad were very much shaming, belittling, keeping them small. So it's just been this realization of a lot of the messages and beliefs that I think are still there were not said to like directly messaged to me, but were to my mom. Yeah. And so just realization that I'm carrying her unconscious wounds still. And it is, man, oh man, I'm sick of it. You know, like I don't just, um, it, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's really I just want to talk about something you said, cause I just think it's so powerful. And I love that you identified this so yes, clearly, my, yes. which is 
the unconscious loyalty to your mom and the fact that you had a really great relationship with your mom for seven years, that's those pivotal times in development, those first seven years. And you had a mom that was present and loving and so with you. And then she was gone. And then it was intermittent reinforcer. So I imagine your inner child must be such a mind fuck, such a mind fuck to have her there like 85% of the time to be like a wonderful mom. Yeah. And then to and that lack of control. Yeah, exactly. But I was just going to say, I imagine that your inner child must maybe have a false conflation that you get to keep mommy by not being happy. There's some kind of trade-off yes. that I can maybe get good mommy back when I don't or if I surpass her, if I do become happy and thriving in a way that she can't, will I lose her? Or what will happen to that relationship if you That's fully it. let it go? That can be scary. I think it's more of like a keeping her safe. Ah. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's like happy mom. It's like, because like I said, like when I started acting out, like she stopped drinking as much. Right. So it's more about this belief that as long as I'm not fully an adult, yes, she'll stay close to me them somewhat. She'll stay alive. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is no, like she's, I mean, it, it's really tragic. Like she's, it's tragic. I don't know how she's alive, you know? And so, but that's still there. Right. I think that there's still this belief that as long as I'm not, as long as I'm still somewhat of a fuck up, that that's somehow keeping my family safe. You know, wow. have you ever talked to your mom about this? Mm, not really. I mean, kind of, she's gone, you know, yeah. It's been the past few years, like just the mental progression of the disease. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Really. That's been hard too. Because even like, there's just been, there's still been moments where I've been able to like get the real mom, like over the past 15 years and they've become like, you know, less frequent as time has gone on. But I just had an incident with her. Like we went to the US Open back in September and yeah, it's just, she's, those good times are few and far between, but yeah. So it's, so that's it's happening. A real that's happening. Even, you know, yes, that's happening. Even it's though you're not re rooted in reality at all. There's no like me staying small, me not fully thriving is there's no saving or benefiting like there was when I was a kid. Exactly. Exactly. So those are the places I love to talk about and work with because that's where you can like unlock, you know, because it's usually the inner child, like you're adult, you understand all of this, but your inner child might be like, I can't let go of this. If I let go of this, I will die or she will die. And that is where we really hold on is the, the inner child part I find. Yeah. Can you just talk more about, because I'm just interested in diving deeper into just this, how we will not live up to our potential, you know, because of this mother wound. And do you find too, that it also is present with, for, for men and the relationship that they have with their mother as well, just, yeah, just the relationship between the mother wound and self-sabotage and not living up to our potential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the mother relationship is primary. We come from her body. We start out as one unit. So that's why people say, well, why do you talk so much about the mother and not the father? And I'm like, well, the father is, of course, part of the picture, but the mother is the one that we have to bond with in order to actually survive. And we are part of her psyche, her body. And so we absorb into our brain and nervous system so much about her. And we need to be attuned with her, you know, that attunement is survival. So that's why some of these beliefs that we have, that's where self-sabotage comes in is because there are false conclusions that we came to as kids that are still operating that mm -hmm. are based on survival and survival beliefs will always override things like thriving and, you know, survival. That's how our brains are actually designed, you know, and the inner child, I like to think of the inner child as that part of us that kind of lives in our amygdala that mm -hmm. I'm scanning for threats. You know, and I have mm -hmm. certain algorithms that I remember from when I was a little girl and a baby that will help me survive. I think they call this heuristic, you know, thinking like there's a template I learned and I scan and I put this template on reality and this is how I organize my choices. It's all subconscious, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it survivals the main thing. And so mm -hmm. what I recommend and through the work that I do is helping women develop what I call an inner mothering process. I know people call it reparenting. You know, people have different terms for it, but I like inner mothering mm -hmm. to deal with the mother wound because I'm like, let's talk about the mother. Let's not make it this genderless abstract thing called reparenting. Let's talk about the person who was, we cannot avoid these very personal, threatening, uncomfortable realities of what we went through with our mom. So I like to call it inner mothering because what we're doing is we're becoming the mother we needed to the little girl inside of us. And we're helping that amygdala 
you know, those messages that are there that are come up with triggers and things like that. We're kind of building a new connection with the prefrontal cortex, which is that more sophisticated part of our brain, which is like the inner mother that we develop inside. And so I invite women to look at what is the mother gap? You know, what did you need from your mom that you didn't get? Because that is typically what we project outwards on our romantic partners and our bosses and all of that. So if we can, you basically have to turn the inner child, keep turning her back towards you. <laughs> you know, when she says, mm -hmm. oh, there's a new mommy in that partner, or there's, you know, a new, maybe she can mother me, whether it's a new friend or a mentor, or we're still, the child in us is looking for mom, you know, that mom, that kind of paradise, like you talked about, you had that mom. But your inner child might be looking for that paradise lost, like wanting to return, wanting to get her back. And so when we do inner mothering work, we become that mother. And we kind of have to help the inner child see that mommy's not coming. The, the mother we wanted, who maybe existed and maybe didn't, she's not coming back. And, and mm -hmm. though, and you're safe. So it's like- In spite of that. In spite yeah. of that, you are safe now and I'm here. And we have to kind of- really cultivate the trust of that child because our child, the child in us has been let down by so many adults. So we have to kind of show up in a way, you know, like become passionate about this child in you, get to know her, really care and be sincere and want to like understand her because she's a living energy that controls your life in a lot of ways. So getting to know mm -hmm. her and taking joy in her, that's when that bond starts to develop is a really exciting time because then what happens is new possibilities become available to you. Things slow down. Instead of just automatically sabotaging yourself, you start to slow down and see, oh, aha, I see that I feel an impulse to do something that's going to sabotage myself, but I don't have to do that. You know, it's like Viktor Frankl talks about that space between stimulus and response. Inner mothering mm -hmm. helps to create that space and widen that, but they're not visible. That space is too tiny with the mother wound. We're just, you know, replicating it over and over again. But we repeat to repair. So it's part of that thing, like we talked about earlier, the universe wants us to, to get this right. So it gives us lots of chances. And inner mothering, I think, is really the key to unlock really new pathways in the brain and new ways of seeing thing, things, new ways of being where we actually can be our authentic self, be safe, right? And it's like turning that either or into both and. Like in trauma world, when we're traumatized, we see everything in black or white and it's in extremes, you know, and it's all about urgency and desperation. And when we do the inner mothering work, things become slower, safer, chiller, calmer, and we can see things more clearly. And then we can act in ways that really embody our truth. So we don't have those conflicts of like, you know, if I'm myself, I won't be loved. If I thrive, I'm going to hurt others. There's a lot of these if-thans that our inner child carries from the past that are just not true now. It's so insidious for me. It does. And the thing that's so hard for me is none of this shit was ever directly said. You know what it I mean? It was all like, implicit. None of it. Yeah. And it makes it so you know, difficult in a way. It's you have just to become like, like a scientist, like an investigator. Yes. Like, what am I believing? What is implicit? What do I implicitly believe is true by acting on this? And where did I learn this in the past? Even though it wasn't because implicitly it's, said. It's, you know, like it, I was never, none of the direct messages were ever to keep me small or to not thrive or to, you know, yes. and even today, I know that they want me to fully thrive. And when it's so insidious like that, it's, oh God. So let me ask you this. So yeah. one thing that I've been noticing and I, I tried to pause last night is, so at the end of the night, that's when all the shame and kind of the panic and the sense of urgency in all the things that I didn't get done that day or yeah. all of the things been procrastinating on for months and months and months and months and months, just that sense of panic and urgency will hit me at night. Yeah. Doing those moments. What does inner mothering look like in those moments? Yeah. In those moments, it really comes down to a few different things you can do, which is just, first of all, acknowledge that the child is you and you is in distress. Say, oh, I see you, little Andrea. I'm with you. I've got you. You know, I'm the adult. I'm going to take care of all of that stuff. You don't have to worry about any of this. I've got a list. I know it's all going to get done in time. You know, whatever you have, you know, done towards that. List would be nice. Yeah. Get a list, <laughs> big adult, little Andrea. So, yeah, you have to take some actions as an adult in your daily life to try to mitigate as best you can, you know, obviously. But it's about soothing and calming and reassuring and breathing. And, and it's a process. It's going to feel hard in the beginning, but try to find things that work like lists, 
alarms. Like I used to have that in the middle of the night. I would have a lurch. Like I would wake up in the middle of the night and panic. Mm-hmm. Like something is definitely wrong. I've definitely forgotten about something. There's some, you know, and that is really kind of an artifact of being a parentified child when you had so much overwhelm. So it's in a way, it's kind of a brain thing. So one thing you can say to your inner child is that's just a burp from the past. There's actually no threat right now in this moment. There's nothing mm-hmm. that's bad that's going to happen. You know, it's okay that these things aren't done yet. So it's almost like you develop an adult narrative over time. And maybe you prepare, you start preparing at night, knowing that this is a time that's really tough. You might change your day a little bit so that the nighttime, have a wind down time with your inner child where you have like little rituals of resting. And and you know what I re- has really worked for me is like talking out loud to the inner child. Like hearing your own voice in a loving, maternal, adult, powerful way is so soothing because it's using your senses. You can hear your own voice and the inner child can really hear it. That part of you is listening. And then the way you know it's working is if you can feel some kind of physical release, whether it's a deep breath or it's a, you know, it's usually a sigh for me or my belly will relax. And I'm like, oh, I can tell my inner child has heard, has heard me and she's listening. Mm -hmm. But the way to start to develop the trust where she actually listens is just start every day in little ways. Get a picture of yourself as a little girl. And every morning, start small, just look at that picture and say, I see you. I really see you and I'm I'm with you. I'm with you now. I'm your adult self. I'm going to start taking care of you more and more. You know, I know what you went through and I'm here to take care of you now. And if you say that every morning for like two weeks with a sincere, like really in a sincere way, you will see changes in how you feel and what you, you know, what things come up. The thing with the inner child though, is you have to be, (laughs) you have to be authentic because the inner child is a great Mm -hmm, bullshit detector. mm -hmm. If you do it just to like, as a means to an end. I just want you to go away, kid, because you're fucking, you know, in my way. Mm-mm, your inner child will rebel against that. So just know that, you know, don't try to bullshit your inner child. She deserves an adult that is there and loving and really shows up, you know, so it's kind of a, an embodiment of respect for the child mm-hmm. in you. A lot of us had parents that mm-hmm. weren't able to convey that level of respect. Like I see you as a separate being that has dignity and that deserves my care you know, and I'm going to show up for you. So that's powerful. I mean, that is a powerful healing thing to do for your inner child to, and be consistent with it. So it's all about, I would say two things. Consistency, Cons- authenticity and consistency. Yes. yes. And another quick thing to remember for quick tips for people, the inner mother has three C's, calm, compassionate, and curious. So if you ever like, what the hell, I don't know. I don't know in this moment how to be here for my inner child. Just try to be calm, compassionate, and curious. Oh, I see your, I feel you. Maybe you're feeling some distress right now, little Bethany. I'm feeling you in my body and I'm wondering what's happening for you. I just want you to know I'm here with you. You know, if you want, if you need something, just let me know. I'm listening. If you do that, even that shows respect and empathy and care. And it can take two seconds. So it's about deep listening. And if you really want to heal, and this is for everybody, if you're listening, you've had childhood trauma and you really want to heal, make this the very center of your life, okay? Make it the center. Make your inner child the most important thing in your life because that is a marriage. That is, your child is Mm. inside of you for life. You are together till death. And if you can really show up for that kid in you and really love her and be there for her, it's going to totally change your life. And, And the quality of everything gets better. You know, so that's what I had to do. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> like I, I learned that through like trying everything else, like spirituality. Maybe if I just become really spiritual, I won't have to deal with my childhood. You know, like I learned that through just having to eliminate, not this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. And I can't bypass it anymore. I have to make this the, the main thing. And then when I did that, literally everything changed over many years. I feel like I've lived many lives in this life because you heal Mm -hmm. and you evolve and it's, you become almost like you shed, you know, regularly, you just kind of become on an accelerated Mm -hmm. path. And that makes it like an adventure. Life becomes like an adventure. What was one moment, like a really pivotal moment in which you were able to see how much you had healed your mother wound? I would say Recent examples would be like, I think the biggest example is a spiritual one. I've been able to see, like I went through a period about maybe like a year ago and I'm still in it where I started to feel like my whole body was becoming, like my senses started to wake up. Like I could smell things from a long way away or I could 
hear subtle things or I was uh, just more mm-hmm. alive, just feeling like extremely mm-hmm. alive and present. And my vision of things, I was able to see in moments, I can see this. And for longer and longer periods that like love, like life itself is benevolent and loving and life loves us. Everything is emanating love. Love is the fabric of actual reality. It's not like a concept or, you know, it's shining out (laughs) of everything. And I've had moments where I'm just like weeping, looking out my window, holy shit, everything is benevolent and beautiful. You know, almost like I feel like almost in an altered state. And I'm like, wait, this is actually how it is. But I've had so many layers of wounds and, you know, patterns. The process I think started when I, my book came out, almost as soon as the book came out, I started having a dismantling of identity. Like everything I thought I was, was actually trauma adaptations. Who am I? Like, Mm. who am I really? Mm -hmm. You know, like I always thought I was the achiever, the good girl, the powerful businesswoman, the blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, these are all just fucking, these aren't real. Who am I, this being, you know? And that started a whole process of, wow, like a deeper relationship with life and reality that is be- is very subtle, powerful, but it's basically like coming home where you go beyond the mother and life itself becomes your mother in a very large mm. sense. And like you become more connected consciously with the living, breathing energy of the universe, which is love itself. And your heart extends so huge. Like you, you can almost become like a vehicle for this love that wants to love everything and everyone. And it's so formidable that there's nothing it doesn't love. I don't know if this is making any sense. It's really hard. It makes total sense. It's hard to put into words. (laughs) No, I totally. What about this? Have you, and I'm sure this is something that you've thought up, but I was just thinking of like the backlash and the reaction that your mom, like in your family has had and how like that's exactly what's supposed to happen because you're supposed to be a voice for this cause. Yeah, totally. I I feel like that part of that spiritual thing has been realizing that they couldn't be different. Yeah. And I had a dream once that I went back to see them and they were just living their lives happy without me and and I was just witnessing all of that and I was just like, "You know what?" They are where they are and they have every right to be where they are on their journey. They get to be believing all this stuff about me. That's where they're at. And I respect, this felt really powerful moment to know how much I've healed is I respect their right to hate me and see me as a villain and see me as like, that's just where they're at in their development. And that has nothing to do with me and they get to be there. And I kind of felt like I came full circle, like I came full circle into the wound feeling like it's not a wound anymore. It's emanating a powerful energy. Yeah. It's a great lesson. Yeah. It's like the hardest lesson of life. I think, Ah. I mean, there's so many people suffering with so many different kinds of things, but I think if you have a good mother relationship, you can handle a lot, you know, but if you don't, there's a lot of healing that has to happen. And I've always been trying to like shorten that, make it a little easier and a little less people feeling less alone on the path because there's so Mm -hmm. many times when you can think, I'm not, am I going backwards? Or, you know, a lot of potential pitfalls. And just to kind of keep people realizing this is actually like something that can, if you really heal it, it can completely change your life in a positive, beautiful way. Yeah. When was the last time that you really slipped into fantasy thinking in the sense of like, well, maybe if I say it this way, or maybe if I do it that way, you know, I can get through to her. Cause I do think that like, and I still will slip into that from time to time, like where, all right, well, maybe if I say it this way to my parent, they'll get it. And I think it's normal, even with healing that occasionally yeah, it is. we'll slip. That. So when was the last time you experienced that? You know, it was a long time ago. And I think because my mother has been so cruel, has been cruel yeah. and literally a troll to me online and stuff that I, that in a way was helpful because it made me give up the impossible dream pretty easily because when someone's actively hurting you and, and I've seen it, like she's like, I actually had a dream about her recently where she was just punching me. And it was like, and I was just realizing this isn't about me. It's like, this is her, you know, her punching life or her punching her own mother. I was just a projection screen for it. And her fist was like an elephant or like a unformed infants kind of, you know, it was kind of showing unformed primitive 
type of aggression. So I haven't, in light of that, I haven't had any impossible dream about it. One of the things that's recently dismantling for me was my relationship with my dad because I've healed so much with my mom that I've started to see more about my father. It's, oh my God, that was way worse than I thought. But my mother was so bad. Mm. I had to initially work with that. And now I'm dealing with my mm-hmm. dad more. When was the last time you had any communication with him? Um, I think 2011. Wow. Yeah. 12 yeah. years. Shit. What about, was your mother wound more present in your romantic relationships or in your friendships? I'm sure both. But where was it more prevalent? I don't know. If, I think it was both because a couple main things. I picked partners who needed a mentor coach <laughs> or needed to be like drawn mm-hmm. out, like pulling teeth to communicate. Inaccessible, you know, but I was like an attendant. So I played that same familiar role of overburdening myself, taking too much responsibility. Or, you know, another big one is projecting benevolence, projecting more potential on people than they actually had. Mm-hmm. I know all about that. <laughs> It's like I had to project benevolence and ignore red flags to to survive my childhood. So that's exactly what I did for many years in relationships and friendships is project benevolence, project more potential and take more responsibility over function because it's just like a muscle that's been so overdeveloped. It's almost like we have to learn how to let this muscle rest, you know, Mm -hmm. let that muscle of too much responsibility just rest and see what it feels like to not over function. What does it feel like to not? And sometimes that's very hard. You know, what about, have you had any interactions with like extended family members about it? Like, has there been anyone in your family that you've been able to like actually connect with on a healing level as it relates to all of this stuff? My aunt, my mother's sister tried reaching out to me a couple of times, my godmother, but I always felt like she was, her goal was to get us to reconcile. reconcile. She wasn't really interested in like, what was my problem? She didn't really want to hear me. I think that it was everybody that I talked to, whether it was briefly or in a letter or email, it was like, you know, she's your mother and you need to just forget this. But, you know, my aunt did try, like, how are you? She would send me gifts or, you know, but it wasn't like, she was like, I hope you guys can work it out. It was never like, you know, can I listen to you? Is there anything? She wasn't like inviting. She wasn't offering to talk to me about it. And I just, so I didn't even try. And I knew that whatever I said to her was going to go back to my mother. So I didn't really even open that door and out of self-protection, you know, I mean, she played the good, good girl role in that family, my aunt. So I wasn't gonna, yeah. Mm -hmm. And everybody kind of organized around my mother because she was more of a dominant energy, like my grandmother. So everybody was just, they just didn't have any courage, you know, they didn't have any courage in terms of, because they didn't have any skills. And this is one of the things that I think as adult children, we realize is, wow, our families don't have any fucking skills. They don't know how to, you know, take, you know, communicate, communicate, like even basic communication is very hard for people that haven't looked inside and that they're just not ready. They just don't have the skills. It's not that they don't care. Even they might believe they care, but they can't actually care because they don't have the skills to demonstrate that care. So all they have is, can't you just forget about it? Let's just go back to the way things were. And, you know, this, they see you as the problem because you're the one that's hovering. You know, it's a very different worldview than like, you know, the person who speaks truth is the problem. That's how people Mm -hmm. I think saw me as she's the problem because they weren't willing to look, come out of denial. And so I think healing Mm -hmm. is kind of letting go and realizing you can't move people out of denial that don't want to be out of it. And it's a very powerful, I think, one of the hardest things for me has been to accept that, that I can't convince them of who I am, really. They will never hear that. And it's not personal. It's just that for them to hear me, they would have to change so radically. They'd have to like change their worldview. They'd have to want to learn things that and learn how to endure discomfort. They'd have to learn how to Mm -hmm. see things that are very disturbing about themselves or their childhood. You know, to understand me would require so much work on their behalf. And they're, they've never demonstrated that they actually want to do that kind of work. So by me wanting them to do that, it's almost like I'm perpetuating my own suffering by wanting them to be different than they are. And they just can't be. And they can't be different than they are. And it's liberating to let go of that. And it takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, because we needed them to survive. We needed them to see us to some degree, but we had to gaslight ourselves to believe it was that there was love there. And then we, now as we become adults, we start to see the truth. And then it's part of, yeah, seeing how much relationship can I have with them? What's actually possible now as an adult? 
So I love, do you ever get tired of talking about this shit? Are you ever like, I need a week of not seeing mother wound like at all, like enough fucking already. (laughs) I do. I feel increasingly more like I'm growing out of it a little bit, but it still brings me so much joy to help people navigate these sticky points because I know Mm -hmm. what the freedom is that's on the other side, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're like, enough with the mother wound. (laughs) Enough already. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's. What are you jazzed about? What's of interest to you right now? What gets you going? What do you find interesting? I'm really interested right now in like meditation and being present, Mm -hmm. like developing your consciousness so that you can be so aware and present moment to moment. And like in touch with the fact that we are alive now. Everything happens now. It's not the past, Mm. it's not the future. And how to live your daily life, even like doing laundry or dishes or taking a walk, like how you can be so deeply in tune with yourself, your body and the universe that everything becomes holy. Everything becomes Mm. sacred. And so that's what's really exciting to me now is nurturing that present moment awareness And I become less and less interested in being a person and, you know, having a social media following and all that crap, you know, making money, having a a public image that interests me less and less. I don't give a shit about that. I just really want to live more consciously with awareness and emanate truth. Like what is true? What can we really know is true and embodying that as much as I can. Well, thank you so much for all that you do. You're helping so many fucking people. Yeah, no, you are. Thank you for it's dropping like the f bombs. I find it so refreshing. Oh fuck yeah! No, we curse here. That's what I say in the beginning of my episode. Sometimes I'm like, we say fuck here. You've been warned because that's some of the criticism I get. Is there's not that many um, adult child podcasts? Can you not curse? Because we need to be able to listen to this. I'm like, that's not what it fucking means to like adult child recovery is about living as our authentic selves, as our fucking authentic selves. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, fuck I love you. it. I think it's a great. It's very real and it feels, I enjoy it. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. Yeah. What, um, just feels, it feels easy. What do you want to promote? Where do you want people to go? What do you want to plug? Yeah. I have a website, bethanywebster.com and there's a main course called healing the mother wound. And it's basically designed to take you the whole roadmap of healing the mother wound, seven main milestones that you need to take to get through it. And it comes with, you know, recordings of Q and a calls that I've done over the past 10 years, as well as, you know, it's a beautiful course. And then I also have little courses. So if you're somebody who's like, ah, I don't know if I want to go the full on there's courses on like boundaries and triggers. And there's one on the inner teenager. If you want to work on your inner teen, so you can find all that stuff on my website, but there's also like dozens of blog articles I've written over the years that you can go. So my website has a ton of resources, podcast interviews, articles, courses, and that's bethanywebster.com. And I'm actually going to be launching like a really great little course that's all about the holidays. So if you have contact with your family, how can you make the holidays really empowered? So it's called the Holiday Toolkit. So it's like how to prepare so that it's an empowering experience for you. Tips, stories of what I've gone through, mindsets, even tips for people that have no contact. So it's a fun little thing that's going to be offered in December of this year. You know what I was thinking? Your parents haven't really, they haven't gone full throttle until they bought, they go Scientology route and they buy a domain name with your, and they create the hate website. Oh, damn. That'd be good. That's because I had the guy on, he has the YouTube channel, like growing up in Scientology. Oh. And that's what they do in Scientology. They buy your domain name with their name and have it be like a hate website. So. Oh um, yeah. My parents yeah. are more cowardly. I don't think they would do that. <laughs> That's, that's full on. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's that happens. It's wow. That's intense.